Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome to another episode of Big Conversations Little Bar. I'm Patrick Evans along with my broadcast partner, Mr. Randy Florence. Good to be here with you. It's great to be here at Little Bar and the uh, center of the universe of Coachella Valley. Does Skip pay you to say that? <laughs> yes. Okay, that's good. I'll I say want, it three more times. I, I, there you go. Sure. I would like to cut myself out of that. Uh, we record this uh, each uh, week here at Little Bar, uh, courtesy of Skip Page, and we have a lot of fun doing it. It's a, it's a nice location to do a podcast because when we invite people on... If they don't want to talk to us, they might at least want to have a cocktail. There's a bar, so, so they're going to be here anyway. And I believe our guest today falls into that category. Fred <laughs> was very reluctant, but we're very lucky to have Fred Bell uh, who with the Palm Springs Air Museum. Yeah, you told me there was alcohol. I was like, sure. <laughs> Fred, welcome. Thank you. I was imbibing there. <laughs> having a little i didn't expect that it's like it is bad to give me a mic and alcohol it's just not <laughs> but that's the situation. perfect accommodation for yeah. a podcast that's there. right yeah that's right this is a you know it's it's not as stuffy as those eye on the desert interviews where they yeah. really frown on us drinking during those patrick tests. is there anybody in this valley that likes to have a better time than fred that, uh, if there is i haven't that met talks them. more about fun that talks more about laughing well, I it's do, incredible I have, following I have, you on your social media. I just, you know, I have a good time. And your little chair, your butt chairs for that thing on the on Eye of the oh, Desert. I know. I go in those chairs, and the chairs are like five sizes too small for your butt. And you sit in them, and it's like, you're only supposed to be here three and a half minutes. Get your butt out of here. <laughs> well, and I will, I will tell a tale out of school, but those chairs... Uh, were commandeered from our snack room. The, there, there was no budget for chairs for Eye on the Desert, and so they were they were commandeered from the break room. Well, and, uh, and I, so there's one less table and 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 four fewer chairs. Well, and I the get station in them and I want sit anybody. there, and it's like you're trying to look, you know, somewhat comfortable while you're being interviewed. And I always see myself after that, and I'm not a small guy. And I essentially look like a beached whale. Well, <laughs> it's just like, hello, how you my, doing? You know, my favorite <laughs> appearance of yours on I in the Desert when you came in full oh, stormtrooper regalia. Yeah. And it wasn't the normal white stormtrooper armor. It was it was the special Darth Vader attachment. Really? Black, black. stormtrooper it was fantastic. You guys didn't get into some sort of a battle on set, did you? No, but on the way out, his engineers had the lightsabers and are going nuts oh, yeah. in the control room, and they're like, "Oh, that is so cool!" You know, it, 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 I want to put that to rest. By the way, there is no argument between Star Wars and Star Trek. I, I like both. Fred's a Star Wars guy more, and I'm a Star Trek guy more. But remember, Star Wars was set in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago, and Star Trek is a documentary of the future. So they're very different things. Yeah. You, you you seem to defend this at virtually every show. <laughs> I, hey, I love I love Star Trek. <laughs> I actually do. I, I do too. I uh, I like spaceballs too. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I love spaceballs. <laughs> merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. That's gonna leave a mark. Uh, so you know when we started this podcast, uh, and it it originated at a couple of bar stools over there. Randy and I were talking about this idea, and it was really kind of music focused and it's it's kind of changed a bit and it's really more personality and, and interview focused but 
when we were talking about guests who who might fit into both of those categories, you immediately came to mind because you come from an incredibly musical family, and you have some really funny stories about growing up in this family. Your your parents were Las Vegas uh, oh, yeah. headliners for many years, and your dad uh, Fred Bell, and the, Freddie Bell, and the Bell Boys, and, and your mom Roberta Lynn, who is still performing. Mm-hmm. And who who you will carry her? It's the amazing thing. She's ninety four years old, and she. She's like dragging along, and you get her up on the stage, and it's like, Wah! you know, and the, put the mic in her hand, and away she goes. And then Charo's going to be here in about two weeks, Ooh. and I imagine it's going to be the same thing. Yeah, it, uh, Charo. Just, Charo, Charo, Coochie Coo, Coochie Coo. You know, she gets a bad rap. She's actually an extremely talented uh, guitarist, Spanish guitar. She's I've, s- I've yeah, seen yeah. her play guitar. Yeah, she. Yeah, my. my background is a little bit different in that um, both my parents were in the industry and so you know and they're talking about these enabled kids have you seen that latest thing on you know about enabled kids yeah Jamie Lee Curtis was oh the the Nepo Nepos yes yeah both my parents were moderately successful but able to earn a living in show business basically their entire lives they which were, is they unusual they were working performers yeah and we talk about working actors they're, they're people maybe not you know screen stars right but they're in a lot of stuff they work constantly they make a good living and, and your parents took that route in entertainment in, in particularly in Vegas well they were yeah and they were exposed to you know if you look at those old uh, like those kinescopes with my dad with Dean Martin and I was at our gala Dina Martin was sitting across from me and I didn't say it because Joe Montaigne was there and a bunch of stuff but I said you know I just saw the video with your dad you know and my dad you know I didn't say it but the those people kind of all knew each other at that point it was a fairly small cadre of people they mostly were um, vaudeville they came out of performing live early right so they were and was that your dad's background? Um, my dad was a street, yeah, singer. And then the Bell Boys got together in Philly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he did. What's interesting about my father is I knew my mom's career really well. My parents got divorced when I was nine. Right, you were very young. Story. And, and okay. if I can, like, you, you didn't have a great relationship with your dad for a no. long time. No, I, I basically I didn't have a relationship with right. my father. My, my dad was a lot of work. <laughs> it's just a lot of work. <laughs> and he, my mom, you know, my, my parents did reasonably well. Then they had a, a restaurant in Newport Beach called The In Place. And uh, Count Basie used to perform there oh. and all these guys. And I remember John Wayne was down there because he had the boat. Yeah, he Newport. lived right there. He lived on and the And I remember that and all that kind of stuff. And then that's kind of when it blew up and the difference was i was old enough to really comprehend what the blow up was my sister who's four years younger had a relationship much stronger relationship with my uh father than i did because she didn't have a ringside seat to all that so it was a real challenge and so i knew my mom's career i didn't really know the extent of my father's career until you started to be able to pick up a lot of this stuff that you see. You can go out and you type in Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys, and he's on Spotify. Hmm. You know, you can. I mean, he's 
he has stuff there. Yeah, yeah, the stuff was preserved and now is is out commercially available and you can it, find it, 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 which is pretty remarkable. It, it is totally bizarre. Uh, and your mom, of course, was uh, Lawrence Wilk's very first champagne girl. She was. And she started, she was a vaudeville and then started, she was in films as a kid. And then the Welk thing was just kind of an accident. She she was the last audition at the Aragon Ballroom, the last person to come in, and I don't remember the song. If you ask her, she will tell you the <laughs> she story. Knows it. She'll do it. She'll tell you the well, story 38 times. We, we definitely need to have Roberta yeah. on as a guest yeah. on, on the podcast. And, and give yourself three or four days <laughs> and, and changes of clothes, because once you ask her, you will be here for days. <laughs> So and then she she got the gig and then pretty much the front performers for somebody like Welk they owned them yes. right it's yeah. not Contract. like you own your like today you own your content there was no ASCAP there was no nothing right the Welk owned you you got so much a week you did it was the like when Sinatra was performing with Tommy Dorsey Tommy yeah. Dorsey owned Sinatra oh, he was yeah. he was Dorsey's boy singer right and that's the way it was that's the way and that's Pretty much all of those front singers at that time that fronted a band or a big band. And then um, she went off on her own. She did Cafe Continental, where, which was on KTLA in Los Angeles, which was the only TV station at pretty much that time yeah. in Los Angeles. And then she showed an Emmy for that, which is a whole other conversation. And then... Uh, um, you know, she kind of went on, and then she married my dad. And they were they were big in Vegas in the 60s. And so the whole Rat Pack thing and all that, she had a front row seat for that. So she's very, very good on for history. If you want to understand, the there really were the mobsters. There really were this. There really, that, there really were. And if you want an oral history of that, she can kind of tell you all that. All those guys are dead now, but that was very real. Which is why she can tell us about it now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. B- before we get too far down this, this road, and of course we want to talk about what you're doing at the Air Museum. Sure. Uh, oh, I want to go back to his mom. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. I want <coughs> the family. I don't mind talking about the family. The story I want, uh, and, and because it's just one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life, is the penguin story. Where he bit me? Yes. <laughs> oh. Damn penguin! <laughs> it sounds like you brought up a painful I, memory. I, here. Oh yeah, no, it was pretty damn painful. <laughs> it, it, it bit him in a, in a sensitive area. Yeah, so. I, I, right I was, in the penguin. Yeah, well, I was working for SeaWorld as <laughs> in park operations, and they used to do these, um, uh, like Andy Williams show. Yeah, it was a holiday, kind of right? It was a holiday special, and he's out there in by the pond or whatever, and uh, 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 they had him like on a, a stage, a raised stage with a scrim in the background, and you know how it was. He would have like Miss USA 1975 yeah. or whatever, and she would be horribly trying to get through White Christmas or something with him, and <laughs> he's warbling, and it's all a track that we're going to track. And so I had been assigned that day to kind of work that crew from a like a crowd control type thing, and you know, ma- you know, Boy Friday, whatever they needed, whatever. 
I, I was very young. And uh, <laughs> they had these two emperor penguins on the back side of the stage. And they're kind of big. They're, they're size is about three feet, about three feet tall. And Just the right height. Yeah. yeah. Dangerous height. A dangerous height. Imagine <laughs> a Cuisinart that's three feet tall. So, so that's what a penguin is. So the damn thing. So there. Our there's, first episode, we sold sub zeros. Yeah, now, yeah, now it's squeezed in our. There you yeah. go. So the birds are doing their thing, and there was what we call aviculture was there. They were supposed to be there, monitoring the birds. Monitoring the birds, and I thought I saw somebody behind the corner of the stage. Like somebody had gotten through our barrier in a brown back. And obviously there's a lot of high power cords back there and stuff. Yeah, not a good place for a stranger. There. So I go trotting back there to look around. And I get back to the corner of this stage where this thing was. And the um, birds, penguins and birds are very, uh, I don't under, I'm not a bird person, but flash, like flashes of light or oh, shiny. right. Right. things. So I think my name tag, maybe when I turned, spooked the bird. But the, the next thing I know, this bird is like and jumps right on top of me from this pedestal. <laughs> and I got it by the flippers <laughs> and the top of the damn bird, you know, the bird's got a beak and it's trying to bite me. <laughs> right? And it wouldn't be the only animal that we used to have Indian goose there that we called beef bird. And you could yell at him from anywhere where you were at. You go, beef bird, and he'd come over and try to attack you, you know, beef. And But this bird, this bird, so I got this penguin. I got my leg around him, and I, I got it, and I'm like, you know. And on where? the other side, there's a show going oh, on. Oh, yeah, they're singing away. Andy Williams is there, up there. Andy Williams is up there singing White Christmas, and I'm dealing and there's with, a battle with going a murder penguin. You know, and this thing is trying to bite me. So I I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement with Cyril. I'm sure it's expired at this point. The statutes are <laughs> out. right. But the um, penguins have um, really powerful feet because they use their feet to launch themselves on the ice and they have a like a big claw foot right so i got my leg on this thing and i'm uh, this is all very short period of time i mean to me it was a long period of time it was very short and i'm like where the hell is the aviculture person to pull this (laughs) murder bird off of me they're watching andy yeah and well the thing's going on and the music's going on and they just didn't see the bird assault me so so the bird gets its footing and when it gets its footing it pushes like this you know it it pushes up yeah like a lever and it flips and so the bite part is in my crotch and the ass end of this bird is right in my face and penguins they crap a lot i can't put it anyway so the bird is shitting all over me can i say that yes yes okay the bird is shit all over me i am covered in penguin crap and the bird is now beak is in my crotch and he's trying to bite me in the meat and two veg and i'm trying to keep his his head pinned so that he doesn't get a hold of me and at one point 
he got me in the <laughs> in the inner part of my thigh, and they the beaks on them they'll, they'll cleave a frozen mackerel in half. He just opened me up, so I felt him bite me. I mean, I, I actually felt it, and I was like, okay screw this i'm done being nice to this bird i just started beating the shit out of it and at that point finally they pulled him off me and the bird's like let me at him let me at him i want some more you know and i am covered and i got a compression bandage on my leg i'm covered in i we used to have these blue uniforms with a blue shirt and a whale white arrow shirt and a and a uh, arrow tie i am covered head to toe in penguin shit and I Meanwhile, remember Andy's out there singing it's the most wonderful yeah, time in the world. Well, they never yeah, they never stopped. <laughs> never, never you know, they're going and this bird has basically a, assaulted me. And so finally they 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 get the bird, they they haul him off, you know, he's gone completely preserved. He's in cuffs. Yes, you know, he's in little flipper cuffs <laughs> and he's doing 5 to 10 and you know, the penguin encounter now. But the so they get me to that. We used to have a, a full, <laughs> like registered RNs and a and a trauma center. That's this was SeaWorld San Diego, right? So they take me over there to like dress yeah. my penguin wounds, and he got me on the inner part of my thigh. So that was fortunate. I I didn't go through a forced could have been a second femoral artery wound. Yeah, so yeah. He, if he got if he got in hold of me really deep on the inner part of my thigh yeah he but he got me where he got me pretty good he opened me up it was like probably 30 stitches wow they had to stitch me up and but hold this compression bandage trying not to bleed all over the place and the nurse is like you're not bringing him in here until you hose him off so i had to stand out in front of the thing and they still had a job to do for and they're hosing me off all the penguin crap off of me before i could go in to get the but it was, uh, uh, anyways, I have a pathological, penguins are good eaten. I say kill as many of them as possible and serve them I up. also imagine just hearing Andy Williams sing. Oh, yeah. It's well, got to trigger some things. wonderful yeah. time. Oh, that could have been what set the bird off. It, was, yeah, no, probably it was white Christmas and the bird went. That is fantastic. But I, I think I, our podcast has reached the zenith right here. We yeah. have. This is a, the, our last episode. We can just wrap it up. That is yeah. the best story. That oh, is. that, that damn is the thing. best story. You've set the bar really, really <laughs> well. You know, it, when, and when you work there, you you have the animals. You have to be careful because they will get out. And like, I had a walrus get out one time. I was working in water quality. And I uh, and you would do different jobs. This was in school, and you'd do whatever they were going to pay you to do, right? And this was an overnight shift. And this walrus had slipped it. They figure out how to open the peg the latch, on their yeah. latch, right? So you have about a four thousand pound. I don't even know what you want to call it. Ball of love. <laughs> moving around back there <laughs> who all he wants to do is make love to you, right? He's out. He's like, hey, baby, come on over here. You know, and if he had gotten so a hold of you, so they would Very white of walruses. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, you hear the dun 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 You know, and the, the damn, I got out one time. There's a damn walrus chasing me around in there. I had an otter get out one time. And, uh, you know, they, the, but you had to uh, actually really pay attention because if they got out some of them 
you know, they could hurt you. Well, sure. And I, the As the Penguin story demonstrates, my God. Yeah, and, and, you know, there were other people that, you know, got banged up by animals. Blackfish, I don't, you know, that was, I, I don't agree with with that, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The, the SeaWorld, in my view, got kind of a bad rap on that. But, uh, but you know, the, the zoos and aquariums, they have a purpose, and you can either like it or not. And, you know, I'm not here to pass judgment on whether they, I, I didn't think SeaWorld, I watched it, and I didn't think they, they got, but that's my opinion. And, you know, maybe people won't agree with me, and they will you know, but they they do serve a purpose. Absolutely. Well, no. whatever they said in that show, I'm sure they didn't talk about getting attacked by a penguin. No, behind the stage. No, you, you, I. We used to. I'm not going to say who this was. The director of uh, av uh, aviculture, and he he would actually go on expeditions to uh, Antarctica, right, to and get the penguins. To get the penguins. To find the meanest, nastiest penguins, they would look, <laughs> for, look the for the penguins next that rim. made a beeline to your crotch. All right, there's a keeper that's right the there. Guy. Get him. He's the guy we want. But the uh, that's a SeaWorld penguin. That's a SeaWorld penguin. And then they would, you know, let me take you in for your review. And you're in a bunch of crotch biting penguins. But the uh, uh, I asked him one time. I said, Why are there no documented attacks of killer whales on humans and he, he looked at me we were actually standing on a stage and I asked him then he whispered in my ear he goes because when something that has a bite radius of a garage door <laughs> decides it's going to eat you there's nothing left and I went whoa nobody's telling the yeah, story yeah you know yeah. And, and I went well you know it's kind of pretty logical raise you know, a good point no. great white shark the same kind of thing but yeah, anyways, that's the uh, that's the penguin story. I love that penguin story. Let me get you back to you're a kid at home. Yeah, so uh, what did this all mean to you as a child? You've got this entertainer mother. What, what was it like growing up in, in those circumstances? Uh, the memories that I have now are, are really cool memories. Like I saw the Sashmo. You know, I saw Louis Armstrong. I stayed at Al Hurt's house in mm. Fountain. I was around some of the greats, but... You know, it's pretty hectic when you're a kid, and it's actually, I can understand, you look at some of the reactions with people on social media, and you're trying to eat your dinner, and, you know, you do this, you know, you're eating your dinner, and somebody comes over and goes, oh, my God, it's Patrick Evans, I love you so much, will you take your picture with me, and so, you know, and you're trying to eat your dinner, right, or you're out on a, you know, a date night with your wife or whatever, it's no different than when you're a kid, and, and they're just coming after your parents and you're going you know I just want to go to the ball crawl you know why am I so it was interesting the other side of it is you have to uh, grow up pretty quick uh, you don't really have uh, the benefit of a, of a like a traditional childhood well your parents are performing every night you're they're they're working and, um, and they're not getting up early in the morning no. It's, no. it's a different lifestyle for the parent, and didn't didn't your mom kind of kind of encourage you to maybe follow showbiz or at least give you the option? We had the conversation, and I didn't more than a conversation when I was very young. Again, uh, kind of right out of high school, she kind of opened did open some doors for me, and I worked on a movie called The Idol Maker with Peter Gallagher. I was a extra, and I worked as an assistant location manager and I did a couple of um, 
those commercials, you know, Northwestern Bank has student loans too. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. And you know, toaster. Yeah. And what kind of did it for me is I was really, I'd always been interested in aviation and I wanted to go down to San Diego State and, and really go on into kind of something with aviation. And um, I, I was on the set of the Idol Maker and there was this, uh, 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 this, young lady that was really, really attractive. And a shocker in movies. Yeah. And one how or another, I wrangled a date out of her, and her she lived in the Hollywood Hills, you know. And, and she turned out to be just the biggest Coke queen on the planet. Wow. And my parents were, my mother at this point, because my dad was out propagating the species somewhere else. And <laughs> the... Uh, the uh, 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 but my parents were were pretty strict about you know no drugs. My my mom didn't do drugs. There's no pot in the house. He didn't do any of that. And so I I was and I was kind of angling towards military. So I, I was kind of trying to stay away from that. And I just went back to my mom and I said you know everybody on this set there are so much drugs on this set. And this I really was circa what year? Yeah, 1980. Yeah, okay. And so, so it, was, it was required. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Prolific. But, uh, you know, like Marie McCormick, you know, with that whole thing about, oh, I had drugs. I was on the set when she, w- she was in that film. She would barely get out of the trailer. Mm. And, you know, there were other things. And, you, you know, it's like, oh, no shit. You know, you, you, have a, you had a substance problem. You know, it was... It, now, a lot of that stuff comes to light. But back then... With some of those people, I had brief interaction. Not they weren't friends or any of that, but you know, you're around and you kind of pick up. Okay, you know, you know, you know who's using and you know who isn't. Who isn't yeah. And so I went back to my mom and I just said, I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. It's with not this. for me. And I, you know, the thing was, I would have to live in that lifestyle in order to be successful. It was pretty apparent. And. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, well, and everybody who was successful was sort of roped into it one way or the other. Or, you know, the producers and the, and the movers and shakers were. Oh yeah. So I mean, the amount of, uh, like I said, uh, just the uh, the tertiary amount that I was involved, and I want to say tertiary, it was quite apparent. So if I mind altering substances. So, but you've had a love of aviation. All your life. So Pretty the, the Air Museum is a perfect place for you. How did you actually get involved? <laughs> uh, how did I do that? I was um, I was on the board of the uh, Association of Naval Aviation, the ANA, and not on the – I was on the – I think I was a member. It's a while back. And uh, Captain John Duncan, who was involved in that, who was an A-4 pilot, said, hey, this museum, I let me, like, go be involved. And so he managed to get me on the board. And I was on the board for some time, and then uh, Bob, you know, passed away, and then things just kind of progressed as I got more and more involved. Um, and then, you know, when Bob passed, we had to kind of take out a clean sheet of paper and really think about what we were going to do. And... Uh, that's kind of how that happened. I, I have 
I have a useless knowledge of aviation. <laughs> it was not your profession. No, you ended Never. up working in the in the building industry. Correct? I was well. I I was uh, you know I, I, I worked for SeaWorld and then I worked for IMAX and then once I he recovered. For, yeah, once I recovered and then I after my my transfusion and numerous tetanus shots <laughs> and then the uh, counseling. Yes, counseling and. You know, I had to you can't wear a tuxedo anymore. I, I had to get used to be around stuffed penguins. You know, there were years where I would just run. Screaming I couldn't watch room. Tennessee tuxedo yeah, anymore. Yeah, no, no, no. But the um, I would just you know scream whenever I saw them on the TV. But but the um, uh, I've always been interested in it, and, and since I was very young, and I but I had kind of worked on the entertainment side, on the business side. And then um, we were going to have uh, Zachary. We got pregnant. Lisa got pregnant with Zachary. And a guy by the name of Ed Kibbe called me. And he, I had done a lot of stuff here in the social circles. And I knew a lot of the government people. And Ed called me and said, uh, hey, I know you're commuting into Los Angeles, which I was still doing at that time. And, and he said, uh, I have a governmental affairs job open. You're going to take a little bit of a haircut on the pay, but you aren't going to be driving, you know, four or five, six hours a day, which is what I was doing, total drive time into Los Angeles. Hmm. And uh, so I took that job, and what I didn't realize is that he hired me to replace him. So about six months in, I come in. I thought he was pissed off at me about something. And he goes, I'm done. I'm retiring. You're it. And that was the end of it. It's like, okay. What an know. interview. Yeah. <laughs> and, but he had, uh, he had really hired me. He didn't tell me at the time, but it was basically, we'll see if you work out. And then really what he'd hired me is to replace him. He was going to retire. And, and, and when was that, Fred? Uh, early 2000s. And that was more of kind of a government relations lobby lobby kind of position. We were basically the voice of the industry yeah. and housing was on fire. Oh yeah. And we were doing about 8,000 permits a year like now we're doing 1500. And uh, and so I I went along with that for quite a period of time and then the market fell apart. And I went through um, Bush 1, Bush 2, and Obama 1 stimulus and really got disillusioned in the whole process because the money, all that money really went to other government agencies. It was like, oh, we're going to do a stimulus and it's going to be... The, the, if you were a home builder, you didn't get any of that money because we used to joke it came with an FBI agent. <laughs> and, and that's true because if there was any dispute... The agency that investigated the dispute was the FBI. FBI. So why in the world are you going to get into a grant where the FBI is a dispute resolution entity? And But the government guys with the shovel-ready projects went in and scooped up all that money for um, infrastructure. And so by the time Obama 1 came along, I had had enough, but I had done a lot of the... Um, uh, renewable energy work because it was in its infancy at that time and so I understood it and I went well there's a business here and that's how Nobel happened which is I own I still own a quarter of that and um, there's a CEO that runs it now but I'm still a partner 
And but at that time, and then they, they called me, and the uh, there had been a dust up. I had been trying to keep the executive officer that was there in because I didn't want to do it, and then that didn't work. And then they called me and basically said, "We got to get you in here." And the uh, you know it was the early days. There were fix it or oblivion. There really? Were, oh yeah, there were no options. I mean, it was not pretty. And um, uh, so the first three or four years were really, really tough. And because, the you know, nothing worked. <laughs> we weren't flying anymore. None of the airplanes were working. And was anybody visiting the museum? We were busy, but we're nowhere near what we are now. Oh. You know, you had something happen during COVID. Uh, and, and every nonprofit, and particularly museums, took huge hits. But... You became one of the go-to venues because you can be technically an outdoor venue. An awful lot of events right. suddenly started happening at the Air Museum, and that continues today. That is that's kind of a, an offshoot of, of what happened during COVID. We, we had the ability to open our doors. And so one of the things was, um, like Riverside County and some people came to us, and they needed venues, and... Uh, the Living Desert and us basically were the only two that could stay open where you could let the kiddos run around in essentially an open air facility it knocked the hell out of our exhibits hmm. uh, during the summer a lot of our exhibits melted really and we ended up having to replace a lot of stuff so it cost a lot of money <laughs> um, but it but we it 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 was kind of a means to an end because we were able to keep operating. And maintain the momentum. Yeah. A yeah. lot of these organizations were at a dead stop for a year or two years. Yeah. And, you know, trying to get that wheel spinning again is not easy. So we were really only fully shut down for about 90 days. Wow. Oh, that's great. But you were we, one of the lucky ones. We were very lucky. But what we also did was we knew it was coming because I still stay involved on the government side and everything that we were getting was they're going to shut down. And so we quietly moved food into the facility and a couple of cots and some water. Wow. And we're like, well, because we didn't know, are they going to go to like National Guard checkpoints and they're literally going to declare martial law and literally you can't go down your street or what are they going to do so the so we put food and water and and cots in the facility and and um uh fortunately we didn't go down that far path but we did flyovers because we had to compete keep doing that you know exercising the aircraft and might as well do it why not and then uh but we furloughed our staff early i think the the two things that if you look back on well three things very generous benefactors yeah. like Houston's and some of the other foundations and stuff that were extremely helpful during COVID there were some foundations that were not and it was like really you know you don't get that this is the strangest thing we've ever seen they either stood up or they didn't at yeah, that point and, right? and they were you know they they just it's not that they were difficult to work with on existing grants, like let's say, but there were other foundations 
you know, Burgers, Allen's, Houston's, uh, uh, a lot of these foundations that were extremely helpful. But there were, and we're not going to talk about who weren't, but there were others that you're just going, really? You know, we're trying to figure this out. Don't you see where we are? Yeah. But we kept our operation going and then then just gradually pulled out of it. But we also, what I was getting at, and I kind of jumped over it, was we furloughed our staff very early, like the first day. And that turned out to be, and, you know, I'm a vice chairman, right? I'm head of the operation, but I, I still have a chairman of the board. I still have an executive committee. But we furloughed our people very early, and the, the, that really helped them because that whole benefit thing was a train wreck. Right. And so they all avoided that and got in the system quickly and were fine. And it also helped us with uh, various government programs that were coming in that we were kind of teed up that we could move on those relatively quickly, where some of the some of the other agencies didn't move as fast. And you just have a vicious burn rate. You know, you when there's no capital coming in. Yeah. How many employees did you have there? Uh, well, we have 16, and we have 16. Okay. So we... Uh, I basically deferred my salary during the entire shutdown. and Which makes that other guy the highest paid person in town. Not Yeah, there, there you go. And <laughs> we said we'd never discuss salaries yeah, there you on go. this podcast. And, uh, and the, reason- <laughs> the retired guy is the one who brought the salaries yeah. up. <laughs> and the, the reason for that was to keep the people that we did have as many as we could, at least on part-time or whatever. Right. And, and then they, t- you know, we, we made amends when everything, but, you know, I, I didn't want to be a burden. My concern was I had, I have a very young staff, or I have younger staff people. They have kids. They, they, I, I'm not, I'm not going to miss a meal, right? So uh, I was really worried about, the, we have a very young operations staff. I was very concerned about, and I'm not talking like 20-year-olds, but younger and I was very concerned that they kind of weren't, they were already freaking out. Yeah. The last thing they need is to be thinking, okay, I'm going to be unemployed. I got two kids. I got, so I tried to take a lot of that stress off. Of were they looking to you for direction? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like a military or anything. You know, if you're in battle and you go, oh, shit, you yeah. know, everybody's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's over, you know. <laughs> That's they, right. You know, as soon as you start running the other way, right, and, right. and you you just can't do that. So no, you, have to, was, you have to lead by example, and, and you did. And uh, you know, the Air Museum is uh, it's one of the most respected organizations in the valley. And you guys, and again, I think you you continue now to host a lot of events, whereas before you didn't, just because suddenly people went out of necessity. We, we have to have an open air place to hold hold our event. Now they realize what a cool place it is to hold it. Event. It's a fantastic area to do events. Bob, you know, with the mountains there, and it's an unobstructed, because of the airport, you have an unobstructed view. Every once in a while, you get a, an air show, you get things go by that nobody's going to see. So, not that close. Um, we're sold out on events. I mean, we can't do any more events. Um, and, you know, we've been just, we've been blessed. I mean, we're getting ready to do the front-end expansion and, and deal with some of the challenges we have because of growth. 
But, uh, you know, and, and again, we have just generous people. Berger and Allen just stood up at the gala and helped us with with a capital campaign on that. So, You know, in an area that is so rife with history, um, the Air Museum has a special part of that. You, it's all history inside of there. What are you most proud of that you've put together in your time there? I think our flight program. Uh, you know, we fly three days a week. It's great to go to the Smithsonian, but all those airplanes are stuffed and mounted. You you know, you go here, you can see them. How much of your stock flies? Uh, we have 75 aircraft, and we fly about 14. But we don't, of those 14, maybe five or six fly a lot. Right. And then there's other aircraft that are licensed, and we do fly them, but they do other things, like first flight program for kids or, or something else. And but you wouldn't tell us if you took the stealth out, would you? No, but then we never know. <laughs> the stealth, you know, what a what a that, that's great, amazing. Uh, that was a phone call. Do you want a stealth? I'm like, yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> you know, and it was like, hell yes. I'm like, we'll figure it out. You know, because they only call you one time. And uh, Bob Who had called you, the Air Force, the Air Force. Okay, and so it was uh, the, the military themselves. Like yeah. when they're like ready to get rid of planes they don't want to fly anymore they reach out to museums like yours like us we we got one of the first four the other one the first one went to the reagan library and i think we got the second one but you've got to go through you go to tonopah so you're up at dreamland and they you know total security you have to go through all that security crap you're going through three rings of security and you get to a hangar and you go in a hangar and you have minders and, and you go in, and, and there they are, and one of them is finished. The one that we saw had the American flag on the bottom, which is that really famous picture of the stealth peeling away in the American flag, yeah. Yeah. and there's another stealth here. And then there was another one that was torn down, and then they're like, okay, this was the one. How did they transport get. it to you? Because at that point, uh, it didn't fly, correct? No, they, it's a, the stealth is a big body and little wings, so they kind of pitch it up on its side on a truck, and then they put the wings and the tail and everything on another truck. But you got to put it back together when you get it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we have to do some assembly. <laughs> some assembly required. Yeah. and That's and, a lot of glue. Yeah. and it's and the, the biggest damn model I've ever made. And the Air Force was like, oh, yeah, we're going to give you blueprints, no concern, blah, 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 right? For a stealth For bomber. a stealth fighter. <laughs> so they give us blueprints. They really did. They gave us blueprints so that we could figure out how to, because it's all sheet metal. Right. And we go to cut the sheet metal. Nothing matched the airplane. So we cut all this stuff, and we're going to put it on the airplane. Nothing fits. And so one of the program stealth people, we said, you know, what the? They said, well, they're all um, one-off airplanes. They're all purpose-built airplanes. So you can't take a panel from 833 and try to put it on 834. It's not a Southwest 737. Fit. So those are the blueprints, <laughs> but every airplane's different. So welcome to our party. And so we basically had to custom fit. You just all had to measure up metal. everything and read everything. Wow. And there, you know, the amount of rivets and you know everybody's got an opinion. So you get 500 opinions of what you got to do. <laughs> and but the key to that whole thing is and it's like anything uh, the rel- keeping the relationship up with the um, the Air Force people 
and and the people that were retiring the airplane because we would run into roadblocks and there were museums that were not nice to them hmm. well that seems silly well, well, i mean that's like cutting off your nose <coughs> we your were like you want a steak dinner bam you know you want to you want what do you want you want a <laughs> shirt bam. Bam. you know what do you, you want, want to meet a champagne bam, bam, girl from lawrence well you want a your birthday party sure you know chef got her what are we doing just do it just do it shut up and do it you're at the stealth party thing okay but the but that pays off because when we run into problems, they would say, it's, it's hilarious. You know, they, they say, well, I have this issue. Okay, we'll be down. So, so you get a little help. Well, they come down, no pictures, and you close the hangar. <laughs> Truck rolls up, you close the hangar. They do whatever they're doing. Drive away. <laughs> open up the hangar. Open up the hangar again. And, and were you even allowed was, to talk about fixed. the fact that it was coming in? Not originally. No. And, and really, you know, uh, like I said, you have to be, I, I still have to be somewhat careful about um, what I can talk about. When I went there, I can talk about stealth, but I don't want to throw any of the program people under the bus because, like I said, we got a ton of help. So if the stealth people ever hear this from Tonopah, those people are flipping awesome. Uh, so the, the fact Force, that you've handed us the blueprints is something yeah, we shouldn't I, talk you about. You each have a blueprint. Okay. Build one. <laughs> And it's one off. It's one off. <laughs> They're all different. They're all different. <laughs> They're all different. But the uh, um, so those people were were really uh, tremendous. And um, but you have to sign another agreement, which is um, if you see something and you can't talk about it, like it's an additional non-disclosure agreement. I mean, I, I signed a telephone book. Oh, I'm and they sure. run every criminal background check and everything they can on you before you go on the base. And then I get up there, and it's in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if you guys have a hard out or whether you'll edit this or whatever, but no, none of the above. We yeah. okay. This so is we're the laziest podcast in history. Right. What we've said goes out. <laughs> so we go to a blockhouse. Like you go to Tonopah, which is an old mining town, yeah. right? And then it's like go out on route whatever and go to the rocket and make a right. It's <laughs> like so, okay. So you drive out. I swear to God. So you're driving, driving like 60 miles out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. I know the area. There's a big rocket sitting there. Okay, right. So we go right, and you drive down this road, and there's a blockhouse there, like a, a with a gate and the whole nine yards. And I, uh, you get out, and I go in, and hello, my name's Fred Bell. I'm from, you know, blah, 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 you know. And... The first thing you notice is how large the man is. And the other thing is that he's armed. Yeah. Which hit me immediately is that he's, he's armed. And so he says, we have one more document for you to sign. I'm like, okay, well, what the hell? It's an additional non-disclosure agreement. So if you're moving around up there, you, can, and you, you cannot talk about anything you see when you move from building to building or place to place. So what were the other... Yeah, no, what I'm were kidding. those I'm kinds of things that you can't talk about? Yeah, yeah tell me about that. <laughs> so, but I, so I sign it and I give it back to him and the extremely large armed man leans over the counter and practically grabs me with my shirt and says, now, do you understand what you just signed? I'm like, yeah, Whoa. I get it. You're, you're going to kill me if I say anything else. So, They're going to send a penguin in. But, yeah, they, they have a fleet. They have <laughs> fleet a fleet of, of angry penguins. But the uh, they devour people. 
But uh, so we go up, we do the thing where we, we see the airplane. I've worked with the Air Force before, so I actually gave them a little bit of shit because we had built a, rebuilt a 105 and the airplane came in. It was just a mess. And so I'm trying to figure out how big a mess the airplane's going to be. Dramatic pause while I drink. And um, so the guy goes, uh, I'm hungry. And they told us the base is deactivated. And you go, by the blockhouse, and on your right, there's these like square two-story buildings and a ball field and some other stuff and it's all overgrown so you figure it's it's deactivated there's you know and you go up and honestly for a airplane person it's kind of like mount everest because you go oh my god i am standing in Tonopah, you know, in the, in the blacker than black areas, right? right? Wow. And I, I'm like, holy crap, I can't believe I'm doing this. So we go in, we do the whole brief. He goes, are you hungry? And we're out in the middle of friggin' nowhere. nowhere. And I go, yeah, you know, because we left like at 6 and it's now about 1230. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I could eat. And he goes, well, come on. So we go out, we get in the van, three rings of security again. And there's this little, like, hump thing. I can't talk about this. There's this little hump thing. And it has, like, a storefront door, the slider doors. We walk in. There's, like, 400 people in there. (laughs) With a full steam table cafeteria. I'm like, what? You know, and so the whole time, and they've all got lanyards on, right? And and I'm like, I don't want to know who you are. I have no, I don't want to even know your name. And I, I got my chicken and my overcooked broccoli, and I went and sat down and ate real quick. But they, it was a very surreal experience. I got there twice, which is a lot more than a lot of people. And the last time when we were loading the airplane, this still a great story. I we're loading the airplane up, right? And I'm like, just like soak as much of this in as you can, you know, because we're on the flight line and it's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Wow. And in the back, I'm and I'm stealing everything. Oh, there's chocks. Do you need those chocks? No. <laughs> Throw them on the truck. <laughs> I'm stealing everything I get my hands on. Oh, what are those? All oh, those are intake covers. Do you need those? No. Throw them on the truck, you know. Do you need this guy? Is he a maintenance <laughs> guy? We'll take him with you. So we, uh, um, you know, we get everything loaded, and in the back of the hangar, these hangars are pretty good size. Stealth is not a small airplane. Right. right? You probably put four stealths in there. He's like, tell him to shut up. Uh, and the, um, it's parked there. And I said, well, what are you going to do with this one? And he goes, oh, we're going to crush it. It was not a program bird. It was like a pre-program bird. It had, it, they made like four test airplanes. And he's like, we're going to smash it. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, and it, and it, it's sitting there. And so I go, can I have the canopy? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So they, they, gave you they the can- took the canopy. Wow. It's in the, the exhibit. But to tell you, uh, to take the story full circle, so we get the, I literally get the canopy. And my guys are like, 
what the hell are we doing with it? I said, look, they gave it to me. I took it. We're taking it. I'm not, you know, you're never going to get another opportunity to do this. So we bring it back. So about six months later, now this is at 40 years ago, about 1980, when I was telling you that I was trying to avoid the Coke Queen. Um, this is the most top secret airplane in the inventory. There is nothing more top secret. So I call them up and I go, you know, I'd really like to take this canopy to Reno because we fly at Reno as right. a curio. Just we're, we're getting ready to build the exhibit. I'd like to put some graphics up there and, and take, and it's, you know, canopy. It's about the length of this table, right? Maybe a little bit bigger, but it's on, we had mounted it on rollers. So it was just going on a truck. And, they're like, sure. <laughs> I go, do you want any paperwork? Oh, no, we trust you. Everything's cool. You know, you're never going to. I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? They're like, oh, yeah, just just make sure you get back with it. Don't break it. That was it. Wow. I'm like, okay. You know, but to them, it was scrap. Right. They were going to smush it. And it just had no more. It had no more value. But uh, so it's in the museum next to the finish still so people can get an idea of what it looked like before we painted it. But I know you guys want to get done and you wrap. Oh, I don't want to get done. I got a thousand more questions, but we need to get done. Uh, Give folks the hours of the Air Museum so they can come see you. Monday through Sunday, seven days a week from 10 to 5, except Thanksgiving and Christmas because we have to be a good employer and let people (laughs) off. (laughs) <laughs> Go see the Air Museum. It's a great treasure here in the Coachella Valley. And, Fred, we've just, uh, as per usual with our guests, we've only s- scratched the tip of the iceberg. I know there are lots of great stories. Yeah, I don't even know how long we went here. Two hours. Uh, no. Two hours? Oh, my God. It's actually already Friday. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, yeah. you know, the penguin story is worth every penny. <laughs> every yeah. So, no, thank you so much for spending time with us. And we really appreciate what you're doing with the Air Museum. And it's great to get the behind-the-scenes stories because sure. uh, it's fascinating what you guys do. And you oh, do we, well. we love doing it. And uh, we love talking with you guys. And we share the little curios online and the stay positive stuff. And well, maybe we'll have to do a remote from the Air Museum at one point. You could do that. We're going to do not? it from the stealth. Oh. You're going to be in the spare canopy. I'm going to be in it. <laughs> yeah. You can get in the spare canopy and Don't make, make me bring my penguin. <laughs> Remember you. that you can find our podcast, Big Conversations, Little Bar, on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And uh, we appreciate it. We're churning out new episodes as fast as we can convince people to come and drink with us. So thank you to John McMullen, our uh, engineer and thank producer. Thank you, John. You've been very patient. <laughs> and as always, great to spend time with my co-host, Randy Florence. I'm Patrick Evans. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar. Little Bar.